You are listening to audio from Citizens Church Elmira. You can find more resources and learn more about our church at citizenselmira.ca. And if you have a Bible or a phone, I would encourage you to turn to the text that was just read in Mark 14, and we're going to continue on in our, our deep dive into the Gospel of Mark. Many of you know that uh, Liz and I were missionaries in Africa, and we served over there doing church planting, and uh, what we did there for many years was learn language and learn culture and get to know people on a relational level to be able to, you know, ultimately present the gospel and see what God is going to do among those people. And um, not every moment was a high moment, you know. Not every moment was done textbook style. And this week I was thinking about a time where I was um, in the village interacting. We were actually uh, cutting a soccer field, getting ready to play some sports. And regularly there was one religious leader who would come up to me and would ask me questions and would just kind of like probe a little bit, digging into the similarities or the differences between Islam and Christianity. And um, most of the time, I didn't enjoy that, okay? I, I couldn't speak very well, and then to debate someone on the spot is really difficult in English, let alone in another language that you're not really good at. And so this time again, he came and he's watching me, working with the other guys, and um, I was kind of like at this level already, right? I was kind of like done with whatever was going on with the day, okay? And so then he comes to me and he challenges me with a question about the prophet David in the Psalms. They're very similar in the Islamic texts and in Christianity, and so he probes me with some questions. And in that moment, I was like, remember, I was here, right? I was like, I'm done. I'm, first of all, I'm thinking, I can't even give a proper answer because I can't speak this language at all, so super discouraged about that. And then I don't even know if my answer would be good to get into a debate with this guy. And so on the spot, I just thought, I was like, you know what? I'm just going to speak English back to him. So I just responded in English. I'm talking away in English, kind of in a way to protect myself, but almost to embarrass him. And in that moment, I thought, is this what a missionary is supposed to be doing? I was like, I'm a missionary here. I'm supposed to be, you know, there's Hudson Taylor, and then there's, you know, Jim Elliott, and then maybe there's going to be a book of, like, Darcy Duick, you know? There's, like, a long line of missionaries, famous missionaries. And here I am in this moment of questioning, crumbling right under the pressure. And I don't know if you have had moments like that. Maybe you haven't. Moments where you were challenged, or someone came to you, maybe about your faith, and in a subtle way or in an extremely direct way, you were put under some pressure. And when those waves hit, I don't know what happened to you, but I crumbled in that moment. And in our text this morning, as we just heard read, there are multiple stories of people coming to dig in and ask questions. People coming to put 
Jesus and Peter on trial in a sense to try to dig in to see like what are these guys made of and what actually makes them tick and go forward, specifically with God's will in their life or their connection to Jesus himself. And so as we look at the text this morning, we're going to look at the two moments of trial, the one where Jesus is questioned, and then where Peter is questioned, and then we're going to take a step back and think about, okay, what is it like when we are put under trial, when we are put under pressure, because that day either has come for you or is most likely coming. So again, do you have your Bibles open? Please look to Mark chapter 14. And we see here in the text, starting in verse 53, we won't read that just yet, but starting in verse 53, that Jesus is again brought before religious leaders and he is, he's been going back and forth with these guys for years now. We started last year talking about Mark 1 where Jesus is baptized and there is aggressive uh, tension between the spiritual forces in the world, like the satanic forces, but also the religious institution that is there is constantly uh, butting up against Jesus and his ministry. And they're trying to make sense of what he is about. And so here we come again. It's, it's culminating. It's growing in its aggression and in its desire to find some sort of resolution to this teacher named Jesus. And here in chapter 14, verse 55, we see specifically what the point is of what these guys are going for. It says in verse 55, Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. That was their goal. Goal number one is let's put Jesus to death. Let's just get rid of him. He is a problem. He's a menace. So they're trying to get rid of Jesus. That is the whole goal. So as we read even this text here, we see that behind everything they're doing, behind all the different activities that they're going to do, the questioning, the testimonies, verse 55 is the driver for them. They're trying to find a way, some excuse, some reason, some valid way to kill Jesus. So in verse 55, again, let's read verse 55, actually let's go to verse 56. It says this, For many bore false witness against him, for their testimony did not agree. And some stood and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy the temple that is made with his hands, with hands, and in three days I will build another not with, made with hands. Yet even about this their testimony did not agree. So here the religious, the Sanhedrin, they bring in Jesus to try to question him and bring testimony against him. Now there's all kinds of laws and regulations around doing something like this, having some sort of, this would be like an informal case, but whether it's a formal or an informal questioning, the legal system in the Old Testament and the Mishnah, which was another collection of all kinds of laws and rules, had all kinds of stipulations for how this was supposed to be done. There was order to be had in all these things. I wrote down a few of the things that were meant to happen in a trial like this. Okay, there's just six that I put on here. Let me just quickly note them. No trial was to be held at night. 
the verdict in a capital case could not be reached until the second day. So you could have like first day hearings, but the second day was the only day where a verdict was going to happen. Witnesses had to be warned and they could only relate the truth, okay? So the, the witnesses had to be like a trustworthy. Those who were accused of blasphemy could be convicted only if they were, you know, reviling the divine name of Yahweh. Trials could not be held in the palace of the high priest, and the Old Testament does not specify crucifixion as a punishment. So crucifixion is a Roman idea, and so everything that you see happening here is kind of following the rules, but also severely tainted. And the reason behind that was, again, verse 55. They are driven not by, you know, following the law, not by doing things right. Their mindset is, okay, how do we kill Jesus? And so over and over again, they're kind of coming towards the legal system and trying to do things right, but they always fall short. It's, it's so um, off the beaten path that many people have even questioned Mark's gospel at this point. There's some scholars who are like, man, this could not be an accurate account of what actually happened. Because these guys are so off path from what the law is telling them to do. And so wayward in how a trial is actually accomplished. But most scholars would come back to it and say, no, actually, this is a, a, a real telling of the events that have happened. But they've just gone astray. They've been driven so much by their own ambition. And so we see a couple of examples in there. We just read it, where they were bringing witnesses before them, right? So one of the rules was you can't bring in false testimony. It's got to be good witnesses. And so they tried that. They knew that that was a rule. In Deuteronomy 17.6, it says this, On the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. So Deuteronomy is super clear. If you're going to bring in people to testify against the person who's supposedly guilty, those testimonies have to be rock solid. They got to be clear. There's got to be no question that when people hear it, they know this is the truth. But what happens? They bring in these guys. They're possibly retelling what Jesus had actually talked about. We know that Jesus did talk about breaking down the temple, rebuilding it. They didn't understand it. So maybe they heard like stories about that. But even that, when they came in to tell that, it says, Mark records here, that their testimony did not agree. So when people are hearing this, they're like, okay, this is not one or two or three good testimonies. This is like zero. And so their case is slowly crumbling before them. And so what Caiaphas does then, he's the high priest, he's leading this thing, he directly questions Jesus himself. So he says, okay, our testimony, this is not working. We're breaking some rules here. So Caiaphas comes and speaks directly to Jesus and basically says, your claim of being the Messiah, your claim of being this person, this great leader, is that really who you are? Are you saying these things? Give us an answer now. And ultimately their verdict is clear. Look at verse 64. You have heard his blasphemy. So this is after Jesus answers. You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him saying prophesy. And the guards received him 
with blows. So their verdict is final. Whether the Mishnah tells them to wait a day or to have good witnesses, they've kind of like, at this point, they've thrown that all out. They said, this is our verdict. He needs to die. This is blasphemy. And then the, the persecution and the abuse starts for Jesus. They start hitting him. They start abusing him. They cover his face. They're spitting on him. They are insulting him. They're demeaning him. So you get the picture of the context that Jesus is facing? Like, really intimidating. Super scary for any of us to be even near to something like that. They have made a, a verdict of death, and they have actually begun the process by physically harming Jesus. And so this is Jesus' early trial. And now we want to look a little bit at what Jesus' response is. What does Jesus do in this situation. And we see it in verse 61. The first thing he does is he remains silent. Verse 61 says this, but he remained silent and made no answer. No answer. Ecclesiastes 3 says there's a time for everything. There's a time to be silent, it says in Ecclesiastes 3, 7. There is a time to be silent. And in this moment, when Jesus' accusers are all around him, when the false testimony is all around him, the testimony is still hanging in the air, and everybody can see that it's lies. Jesus chooses in that moment to be silent. When the accusers come, when there's all kinds of false accusations, he chooses silence. And I don't know about you, but that is hard to do, isn't it? To choose silence when there's false accusations, when there's hardship going around you, the easiest thing for all of us to do is to speak, is to say something, to defend ourselves, to fight back, to use words, to do anything, to stand up for ourselves for what seems really right, and in many cases might be right. James chapter 3, which talks about the power of the tongue, and he's got a whole big section on the power of words and what they can do. James 3 says this when talking about the tongue. With it, with the tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth comes blessing and cursing. My brothers, and I could include sisters, these things ought not to be so. James's teaching there is really clear. There is power in the words that we say. And that's just us as humans. Jesus himself was also God in the flesh. Fully man, fully God. And in being fully God, he had the experience of creating with his words. Think of the power that is in the word of God. We also see in Revelation at the end of time that Christ himself will speak judgment, will be the one who makes judgments with his words. It talks in Revelation that his tongue is like a sword, okay? He has power in his words. He has the ability to like just destroy everything around him. And yet in that moment, he chooses silence. And what Jesus does in that moment is he shows for us a couple of things. First, he shows us a deep trust in God. We've seen this building over the last few weeks that 
Jesus knew the darkness was coming. He knew that difficulty and persecution was coming. But Jesus is rock solid in God's will for his life. Rock solid. Knowing who God is, knowing the character of God, he knows that whatever comes his way, difficulty, miracles, great meals, no meals, he stands under God and that God is holding everything together. Man, what a promise for us as God's people that no matter what comes our way, difficulty, hardship, challenge, unprovoked, whatever the circumstance, God is still God. He is still over everything. We can trust him with all things in our lives. And this is what Jesus is doing. He is learning and showing trust in God. Secondly, he is living out his position. Jesus has been secure in his position, his whole ministry. And that gives him like just total freedom to be able to go into any situation, to be able to serve people, to interact with sinners and tax collectors, to be challenged and questioned. And even now, in this moment of severe testing and severe trial, Jesus is firm in his position before God. And when we become believers, when we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, we are positionally set aside by God. We are his. We are secure. So no matter where we go, no matter what people say to us, our identity, firstly, and this is something that I know all of us need to grow in, our first primary identity is not in what we do, is not in what we look like, is not in how much we have or how much we hope to have. It's that we are accepted by God. We are named by him. We are his. That gives you like a total freedom to live your life that most of the rest of the world is just loving to have, would love to have some sort of security like that. But it's easy to lose it under the pressure, isn't it? It's easy to kind of let it go because the other things seem so much more tangible. You can hold on to a bank account or you can hold on to this thing or this kind of identity until it slips right through your fingers. But Jesus is secure in his position. So Jesus remains silent. But the next thing is really interesting because it almost contradicts what I'm about to say. Okay, Jesus is silent. He doesn't say anything. But then look at verse 62. He actually tells them the truth. He uses words. Well, let me just rewind to verse 61 where the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Verse 62 then says, And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Jesus here speaks truth to Caiaphas. Caiaphas is frustrated. It's not going well. He's trying to find a way to get rid of Jesus. And so he asks the most direct question he can. Basically saying, are you the Messiah? People are saying that this is you. You haven't kind of come out and clear commotion because people are thinking this. And so Caiaphas says, okay, what is the answer? Are you the Messiah or not? And so in this case, Jesus actually speaks the truth to him. He tells him exactly 
what he is and who he is. He tells him that he's the son of man, which is a quote to Daniel chapter 7. And he says that he will be at the right hand of the father, which is a quote from Psalm 110. So the religious leaders have super crystal clear clarity on who Jesus is. They can see right into his answer now. There's no kind of wondering, who is he? What's he about? Jesus is totally clear. And listen, there are times where we need to use our words to bring clarity to things. But we do that in different ways. And you can see that even in Jesus' interaction here and in previous interaction, there are times where people who don't know Jesus at all, never heard the gospel or know very little about it, in that case, you see Jesus just telling the good news. He's gentle with his message. He's telling them about glad tidings, about the joy that comes from knowing God. But then there's others who maybe have some understanding of Scripture, have a little bit of knowledge. In Jesus' time, it was about the Messiah. There was some kind of interest, some sort of wonder, intrigue. In our world, it might be people who heard the gospel before, or maybe they went to church when they were kids. I don't know, whatever the context is. And in that case, we come to them with the truth still, but often it comes with a little bit more rhetoric. It comes with a little bit more understanding that there's questions there that need some decent answers. Because people are maybe wrestling over some concepts that have been there for a while. And then there's the third category, which Jesus is coming at here. And these are people who have massive portions of Scripture memorized. They know a ton, but it's all here. And when it kind of starts seeping down into the heart, they kind of push it back up to the head. And in that case, Jesus gives them straight talk. Jesus is actually ferocious when he speaks to them and says, this is the reality of it. And he just is clear. He talks about being the son of man and being seated at the right hand of the father. And basically he's saying, I want to make it crystal clear for you. You know the Old Testament text. We read this and we need like commentaries. We need to figure out what's going on here. They knew exactly what Jesus was saying. Jesus is saying, I am God and I am the Messiah. And I want to just make that so clear for you to hear that. And what was their response then? Verse 64. They were, they were okay with it, right? That's what it says. They were, um, you know, okay, you do you. You know, that's, that's a great truth for you to, to kind of hold on to. No, they were like ticked off big time. You have heard his blasphemy. And in verse 63, which I didn't include in the slide there, the high priest tears his garments, a sign of like massive insult and you know, some sort of horrible thing has just happened. He tears his robes and they beat Jesus and Jesus suffers persecution as he speaks truth to them. They hate Jesus. They're the ones who know the scriptures. They're the ones who know and can answer questions about God. And yet here in this moment, hatred rises up. Hatred is the thing that just bubbles to the surface. And Jesus calmly blows of the guards at the end of verse 65 there. Their hard hearts are masked by religion and by 
misguided attempts at finding out who this person is, and ultimately they are sickened by what they hear. Then we come to Peter's trial. So the story switches, and it goes then to the narrative of Peter, who is in the courtyard. And Peter is so much like us. He, in moments of challenge or difficulty, does the classic fight or flight. You know, he does either one of those. And we didn't read the account last week, but in the garden, he's like all fight. You know, he pulls out the sword and he cuts off someone's ear. He's ready to go to war. And then here we see his moment of running away from it. So in the same 24-hour period, Peter is doing both of those things. And so here we come to Peter's story, and in verse 54, going all the way back to the beginning of our passage, we got to see this, though. It says, And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. So before we throw Peter under the bus, before we kind of mock Peter and his failure that it's like on display here for all of us, we got to remember that Peter showed up. Peter was there. It says at the end of the garden that everybody ran away. Even Peter at that point. Everybody's gone, it says. But as they bring Jesus in to be put under trial, Jesus, Peter is there. Peter comes. He wants to actually do what he said he would do. Peter said, even if they kill you, even if they kill us, I'm going to be there. He runs away, but ultimately he comes back. He puts himself in that place near Jesus. And there's often times where we, as followers of Christ, take steps of faith. We, we do things. We step into things that we're unsure about. And it comes with a level of risk and with a level of difficulty. And that's what Peter is doing here. It takes courage to step into something like that, into a firestorm like that. Courage, like James Hollingworth writes it this way, courage is not the absence of fear, but rather the judgment that something else is more important than one's fear. And that's what Peter wants. Peter knows this is a scary thing I'm going into. I'm going to like listen to this. I'm going to watch what they're going to do to Jesus. And I'm going to trust that Jesus is who he says he is and that he is greater than anything that could come my way. Any challenge, any difficulty, I'm trusting, I'm hoping that, you know, Jesus is who he says he is. And it's with that mentality that Peter then comes and famously denies Jesus. Look at verse 68. After Peter is sitting there warming himself by the fire, it says, but he denied it. Someone says, you were also with the Nazarene Jesus, but he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, this man is one of them. But again he denied it, and a little while Late a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. So here is Peter. 
putting himself in a place of trust and in confidence in who Jesus is, and then the waves come. The waves come, and he's like a castle on the beach. Just one wave after another starts eroding the sandcastle, and it begins to crumble and to fall down to the point where Peter is cursing himself. He's just going to like extreme lengths to tie any connections to himself and to Jesus. And in Peter's account, we see no excuses from Peter. Remember, this is Mark's recording of Peter's own testimony. Peter telling the story of all the things that happened in Jesus' ministry. And there's no, like, excuses here. There's no Peter putting in, well, it was the middle of the night, and I was pretty tired, and I didn't get dinner that night, so my stomach was growling. So when someone asked me the question, I was a little snappy. Sorry about that, you know. There's none of that stuff. Partially because Mark is very brief, okay? But also, Peter is just straight up confessing what happened in his life. He's just calling it as it is. He's saying, I was there, and when they came and they asked me over and over and over again, I denied it. I denied association with Jesus. I denied being a follower of his. When the challenge came, when the pressure was laid on, am I associated with Jesus or not? Peter is super clear saying, I crumbled. And this is partially why we have brought confession and the communion as a regular part of what we do here on Sunday mornings. Because, I don't know about you, but many of us have grown up in context, grew up as children, or maybe were um, in churches, and maybe even we felt it in this church where the Pressure to conform and to look a certain way is greater than our ability to even confess the brokenness that is in our lives. So rather than coming to each other and coming to God and confessing the brokenness in our lives and being totally transparent and honest, we rather choose to cover it up. To just kind of make it look good, clean things up, and hope that nobody asks. But can I just say, this is a beautiful testimony for us. This is for something for us to just kind of dwell on for just a minute even. Just to let it sink into our minds that Peter, in his retelling of the story to Mark, says, Mark, you've got to write this down. Don't clean it up. Don't add any excuses. This is what happened. I need to confess this to you, Mark, and you need to write that down so for centuries and centuries and centuries, God's people can see Peter was a failure. Peter crumbled. And it's good for us to see that, not just to point at Peter, but then to bring that kind of, that kind of mindset, that kind of openness and authenticity into our lives and to share that with each other, which is really difficult and hard to do. And the only reason that Peter could do that was because he had a greater hope in Jesus. That hope was still there. That caused him to, to risk him, his own safety to go and see what Jesus was doing. And it ultimately then caused great 
regret and sorrow in Peter's life. Verse 72 said this, says this, And immediately the rooster crowed a second time, and Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. He broke down and wept. There's some pain. There's some pain in Peter's life there when he recognizes what he just did. And there's pain in our own lives when we fail God and when we fail each other as brothers and sisters and when we fail our closest friends or the, the family that we're a part of. There's, there's great sorrow and pain that comes with that. But it comes only when we are free to stand under the protection, in a way, of the goodness and the grace of God, which is where Peter is standing when he's telling the story. So we have Jesus under trial, and then Peter under trial. Very different, very different outcomes and very different responses. And Mark's writing style here is specific. It's there for a reason. There is a narrative genre, but there's also, remember we talked about this a, a few times now. I think this is the third time this is coming up. The Markin sandwich. Remember us talking about that? Where you're like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Okay, there's this thing called a Markin sandwich where Mark will take an idea and bring it up here and then talk about something else and then come back to it here. And so in verse 54, he introduces the fact that Peter is there. That's the top side of the sandwich. And then he brings in Jesus' example. And in the end, he ends the text with, here's Peter's example. And the reason why Mark is writing that way is he wants to point us to the, the right part of the analogy, and that's the middle. So we are given two examples here. Peter's example, which is in the beginning and the end, and Jesus' example, which is in the beginning. And so Mark is saying, by putting it together that way, the example that you are to follow is Jesus. And remember, Mark is writing this to Christians in Rome who are starting to suffer persecution. And they're probably experiencing and maybe feeling even what Peter was feeling. And the temptation to follow Peter's example is there. But Mark is saying, follow Jesus' example. And so for us, let's just land this a little bit, last couple of minutes here. Land this now for us in our trials. And when the questions come to us, how do we follow Jesus' example? Because you and I will be faced with trials. And I'm not talking about like difficulties in life. We know those are coming. But we all will be faced with times where people will come to us and ask us questions and will put the pressure on even for what it means to be a follower of Christ or to be called a Christian. I get this regularly because, you know, when you meet people, what's the first question that comes up if you meet, like, a stranger? What do you do for a living? That's usually the first one that comes up, you know. And I'm not ashamed to say that I'm a pastor, but I just know that in so many cases, it just adds, like, a ton of awkwardness to people's conversations, okay? I don't know what. People have to stop cursing around me, and this is like, all kinds of weird things happen, Okay. And like last year, I went to a, a, a new barber in Kitchener. It was just like a one-time thing. Then got my hair cut. And I knew, I was like, okay, I know this question's coming up. I'm just waiting for it, you know. 
So he's cutting my hair, and he's buzz, buzz, buzz. And finally, the conversation's like, what do you do for a living? So I was like, oh, okay, I have to tell the truth here, you know. Uh, do I say, like, a global nonprofit? Um, you know, the largest corporation in the world? You know, some sort of cheesy answer like that. I was like, no, okay. I was like, I'm a pastor at a church. And, like, buzz, buzz, buzz. The conversation was, like, stopped, you know. And it was kind of like, how about those Blue Jays, eh? You know, it was like he didn't know what to go. He didn't know where to go with this. And I think my haircut was fine, but it was just total awkwardness, okay? And that's because, like a lot of people, people who don't go to church, they don't really know where to put me. They're not sure what to, you know, say about me. But let me tell you, and maybe you've had this experience, more and more people don't know what to do with you either. I'm not sure what, if you're just in the bubble of Elmira, but if we ever get outside of this, right, when people interact with you, and they find out that you're a Christian, they don't know where to put you anymore. And they might be like, there might be questions kicking around in their head like, okay, like, do you believe in like a thing called hell? Do you, do you believe in like the Bible? This like oppressive book? Do you believe in, in Jesus who rose from the dead? Ooh, like, is that what you believe? Those are the questions that people are either not asking or they are asking directly when they find out you're a Christian. And listen, they also are coming with some really good questions, okay? Some serious questions that deserve serious answers. But more and more, as Canada secularizes more and more, you are placed in the category of other. And so the pressure then is going to be building because there's not an understanding of where you're coming from. It's like if you have ever gone to another country for, like a, a country, not the USA, like someplace totally different, okay? Someplace that is like cultural differences. Well, I guess the US has lots of cultural differences too, okay? Someplace very different. If you're just there for like a week, you can put up with those differences. You're just kind of laughing about it. No big deal. Why is that? Because you know you're going home in a week. You're going back on a plane, and you're out of there. That is the mindset of like being an exile, as Peter says. Bringing the mindset of an exile. You are temporarily there, and so you're able to put up with things that are difficult to you, but you're able to get past that. And that's the mindset that Peter says we need to have. He says this in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also are to be holy or set apart in your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy." And if you call on him as a father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Peter is saying you are exiles now. And so you are to be, first of all, he says, prepared. Have your mind ready because people are going to ask you things. They're going to challenge your way of living. There's going to be awkward conversations. There's going to be difficult questions. And Peter says, be prepared. 
Like, don't be surprised when that happens. When people don't understand your choices in life and the things that you're doing, that's okay. Don't be insulted by it. Be set apart. That word holy is sometimes confusing. Be set apart. Be distinct. That you're not so, like, soft and brittle and insulted every time someone challenges you. But he also says, be hope-filled. Be filled with hope. Because that's, it's hard sometimes when we're challenged, when the waves come against us, when difficulty comes, when insult comes. Peter doesn't just say, you know, just have a smile on your face, just be happy. No, Peter says, that's going to be hard, but put your hope in God. Put your hope in what God is doing. Be prepared and be filled with hope. So when the world comes and challenges us, we are to be called to live as exiles. But lastly, what do we do when God challenges us? When God comes up against us? When God's truth through his word, through song, through testimony, through other believers, when God comes and speaks to us, what's our response going to be? In 2 Chronicles, there's stories of all the kings and what they're involved in. And there's a story of Asa the king. And he starts off really well. He's following God and he's, he's committed to God's ways. But then over time he gives in. His confidence in God is eroded. And then God comes to him through the word of a prophet and he says something to him. And this is probably a verse that maybe you've seen on a, a coffee mug or a quilt. Like this is a verse that many people know, okay? Second Chronicles 16:9 says this, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. Basically, God is saying, I'm looking for someone who has a soft heart. And in that moment, Asa then is confronted. Okay, God is speaking to me. Am I going to be soft or am I going to be hard? Well, the text goes on. It says this. God is direct to him right through the prophet. He says, you have done foolishly in this, for from now on you will have wars. So difficulty is coming. Then Asa was angry with the seer and put him in stocks in prison, for he was in a rage with him because of this. And Asa inflicted cruelties upon some of the people at the same time. Asa's like, okay, no. God's coming to me. And the, and the prophet is super clear. He says he's looking for a soft heart. And what does Asa do? He hardens his heart. So when God comes to us, it is a good reminder here. It is, a, it is something worthy to be on a coffee mug that God is looking for soft hearts. The trial of Jesus, the trial of Peter, and our own trial. Peter here is, for the first time, called as someone who followed Jesus. And when that call came, he crumbled under the pressure. But there's another time when someone said that Peter followed Jesus. In Acts chapter 4, Peter has been healing and preaching, and he's drugged one more time before a council. And I wonder if in that moment, Peter was like having deja vu. He's like, man, I've seen this before. I've watched this happen to Jesus before. He is drugged in front of these, these religious leaders, and they ask Peter again. They say directly, by whose name are you doing these things? They want to know, who are you with? 
And in that moment, Peter's just like, okay, what do I do here? This is a wave. I've crumbled before. But now we see Peter who has experienced the grace of God. And it has begun to get into his heart and has begun to seep in. And Peter says, he gives clear testimony. We are doing all these things because of Jesus. And he says Jesus' name multiple times. It's all Jesus, all Jesus. And those who are performing the trial, this is their conclusion. They're like, we, we don't know too much about these guys. All we know is this. They're not too smart. Okay, it says that they're uneducated and that they've been with Jesus. It was clear they had been with Jesus. And Peter, we see here, is now a changed man because of one thing, because of the grace of God. The grace of God seeped into his heart. It took a while. It took years. But the grace of God finally held its place in Peter's heart. And may each of us this morning also be reminded of the grace of God as we go into a world that challenges us in regular ways and we be witnesses for Jesus in that space. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the grace of God. Thank you for the example of Peter and ultimately for the example of Jesus. And Lord, each of us regularly fails and struggles in these things as life crashes around us. And Lord, I pray that today would just encourage us one more time to trust and to rest in your grace towards us. In Jesus' name, amen.